This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts. Hi, I'm Christina. I'm from Prague. Hi, I'm Jen, and I'm from Canada. Hi, I'm Ola Banji, and I'm from Nigeria. Hello, I'm Liki, and I live in Paris. Hi, I'm Brian, and I'm from New York. Welcome to Carbon Sessions, a podcast with carbon conversations for every day with everyone from everywhere in the world. In our conversations, we share ideas, perspectives, questions, and things we can actually do to make a difference. So don't be shy and join our Carbon Sessions because it's not too late. Hi, I'm Jen. And hi, I'm Liki. And today we're joined by Osprey Orwell Lake, joining us from California. Osprey is an author and activist and the founder of the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network. And Osprey is involved globally and works with grassroots leaders from, I would say, less represented groups in society, policymakers, and diverse coalitions to build climate justice, resilient communities, and address transition to a decentralized, democratized, clean energy future. So thank you very much, Osprey, for being here with us today. Well, it's really an honor to be here, and thank you for the great global work that you're doing around climate. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. So in your book, in your new book, the story is in our bones that will come out at the end of this month, so probably around the time that this episode will be published. You talk a lot about worldviews, and this is actually the first part of your book, and then you keep talking about worldview again and again. I believe that it is very, very important because very often, this is what I think, that disagreement and conflicts happen in the world and through history because people have different worldviews. And so to start off a conversation, I'm curious to know what lens do you currently see the world through? It's mm, a wonderful question. Thank you. I think that, you know, one of the, the reasons that I wanted to frame this book on climate from the perspective of worldviews as well as climate justice is that in my work at the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, we can, every day we work with very practical matters from reforestation projects to forest protection, as an, as an example in the Amazon, to doing fossil fuel resistance to stop dangerous pipeline projects, fossil fuel projects, and stop fossil fuel expansion, as the International Energy Agency has said, or the IPCC reports are keep telling us no more fossil fuel expansion. So every day we're very involved at our organization with very hands-on projects, hands-on advocacy. We go to the UN climate talks every year for over a decade now, advocating for gender justice and indigenous rights and phasing out fossil fuels. So there's a whole host of things we do at our organization to meet the immediate cause of doing all that we can around the climate crisis from a climate justice perspective and lens. The question really became for me, how did we get into these interlocking crises, whether it's looking at colonization or the type of economies that we have are very extractive. Capitalism is a very extractive economy, whether we're talking about looking at world governments that are still quite patriarchal, whether it's looking at racism and seeing you know, what is really upstream from these interlocking crises. How did we get here? And that really led me to thinking about our worldviews. 
Because, for instance, if tomorrow we waved a wand and uh, we fixed the climate crisis, we're still degrading our environment. There's still social injustice. And from the perspective of our organization, there really isn't a separation between social and ecological justice. They are completely interwoven. And so that's what really led me to want to explore both looking to the past and understanding these patterns in society and where did they come from and these social ills and the mindset that got us into these crises. And then how do we dismantle them if they're very dangerous to then create the world that I know we're all really longing for and wanting to summon together, which is, you know, very equitable and caring for the earth and one another. And I just would add one last piece, which is that I think not only are we dismantling very harmful structures that I mentioned of colonization and our current economic frameworks, racism and other social injustices, I think that we're also needing to reclaim and also rescue, if you will, some ancient worldviews that many of us had in our lineages that are from pre-colonial and pre-patriarchal times. So it's also about renewing some of the traditions that connect us to the land and the earth and the web of life. Because I think if we're not centered on the fact that we're on a living earth and we can connect to nature and we can heal this disconnection from nature narrative that we find ourselves in a modern society, it's extremely difficult to really navigate how we're going to get from where we are now to where we want to go if we continue to have this disconnect from the very web of life that we're trying to protect. And also if we cannot connect to the earth that sustains us all. So that really led to this conversation about worldviews and how do we really connect to nature and each other in a very different way than we are right now. I noticed that you used story and you used poetry to weave all these topics together like a big tapestry. <laughs> and I wondered, I mean, story is ancient and, and built into our DNA as humans. And I, I wondered what brought you to frame this? Quite, It's quite a big book. What, what brought you to, I have it here, <laughs> what brought you to uh, frame it through story? Where did that come from for you? Well, I, I, in my experience, you know, just, uh, you know, since childhood, and I think all of us, I mean, we're so impacted by stories and what is the narrative and how we find meaning in the world. And we have our lived experience of what we actually experience the world to be, but how are we interpreting that and how are we experiencing it is so often through the stories that we're told, whether those are cultural stories or religious stories or uh, stories that come from, you know, just the, the, the onslaught of media that we hear every day. All of those stories come from a framework. All of those stories are based in our belief systems, how we understand the world came into being. Or in my book, I also got very engaged in the beginning section of the book about looking at origin stories, meaning how do we know where do we come from and what are our agreements with uh, nature, what are our agreements with the original instructions that have come from many ancient peoples? And what are those codes of conduct that we need to really look at? And how are they embedded in stories? And so in contrast, we can see that, you know, I made a distinction between some of the uh, ways in which 
our current society is filled with narratives around racism and patriarch and colonization, or in the sense of uh, consumerism, buying more and more and more. And so those narratives are built into everyday activities, everyday stories. And how do we then begin to interrogate those and open those up and begin to open our minds to a very different view that, as an example, understands what does a decolonized framework look like? Uh, what does it mean to fill our lives with other kinds of learning and growing than buying things to satisfy our need for uh, uh, how we're going to grow and how we're going to live our lives? And I think in many ways, there is a, a great cavernous emptiness that people feel, almost an orphanage from the land, an orphanage from community. And unfortunately, I think that over time has built societies around the world that are trying to fill this great void, this vacuum, this orphanage with consumerism, which is hurting the earth, but also a lot of violence and othering of other people to, again, find identity, find purpose and meaning, and that we really need to heal these wounds because it's extremely difficult to navigate and transform the destructive nature of this moment in time without also attending to the wounds that got us here. And I think stories are an incredible carrier of the knowledge that we need to have to really find a path forward. Hmm. I know that I was very moved by the story of your mom um, and the garden, the flowers being planted outside her window so she could watch them bloom. What's your favorite story that you told in this book? Oh, I don't know. I'm terrible at favorites. <laughs> I will, maybe I'll just share one of the stories um, because, you know, they all have different meaning and, and are placed in the book to help illustrate different things. I mean, the book is, you know, a, a book that is a combination of historical research and also technical research on climate combined with science and indigenous knowledge also, you know, memoir in some way, because I think it's important that we also include ourselves in the story of what is happening right now. Um, so yes, the story that you told, since, since I'll just maybe share a little bit more about that since you brought it up, is one in which it comes in one of the chapters around reciprocity and what does that look like? And um, when my mother was uh, dying of cancer, one of the things she had requested is that we garden together. And uh, so we began to really think about what kind of garden could we have that would generate healing for nature. And as we all know, there's a lot of um, um, challenge right now for pollinator species, bees, butterflies, hummingbirds, because of how much environmental degradation there is. And so we specifically uh, built this beautiful garden filled with so many different kinds of gorgeous uh, flowering plants that are uh, really attractive for pollinator species. And so we did a lot of research and uh, combined different uh, plants that really love one another. And we planted a garden in a place that my mother had chosen. And, uh, you know, sure enough, we, you know, in the spring, there were all kinds of, uh, including even some bats that came at night, but there was bees and butterflies and yeah, it was really very, very sweet. But what I had not anticipated is that the place that she had chosen for this beautiful mosaic of flowers to be, I uh, was right in a position where when she was in her bed, when she became bedridden, she could see this garden. And I was just really moved by that, that as she was passing to 
the spirit world, she was also seeing this beautiful gift of life um, being given back to earth. And so it was an example in the book of, of a very personal experience of reciprocity. And then, of course, you know, the chapter goes on to talking about in-depth analyses around how uh, we really need to acquire a different view of how to live with nature as life enhancers and how do we have a reciprocal relationship with the land versus just taking and consuming and extracting. Mm, thank you. Thank you. You mentioned the importance of Indigenous wisdom in combating climate change. Why is it important to know the knowledge, the wisdom of Indigenous people? And can you share some examples of effective Indigenous practice for sustainability? One of the most important things to me right now is that we all really respect and honor Indigenous peoples. 80% of all the biodiversity left on Earth is in the lands and hands of Indigenous peoples which is quite remarkable, um, given that they're about 4% of the world's population. And so this clues us in that Indigenous peoples are living in a particular way and have a worldview that is healthy with the natural world. So when we're talking about our forests, our rivers, the air, biodiversity, we're talking about indigenous peoples immediately and how they are respecting their lands and maintaining their lands and their territories. So for me, when I think about uh, how we address the urgency of the climate crisis, I immediately think about indigenous peoples and learning from them and really sitting at the feet of their wisdom and being very respectful because there has been so much extraction, not just of their territories and land, but also of their knowledge and information. So I also say this very humbly that, you know, it is our time to really listen to indigenous peoples who have been leading the way in how to live in harmony with the natural world through their practices, through their traditional ecological knowledge, through their deep longstanding relationship with place and where they live. So some of this, you know, can look like, first of all, wherever we live, who are the indigenous people upon whose lands we are? And for me in California, it's really important to recognize that I'm living on stolen land. I live in Coast Miwok territories. And what does it mean for me to get to know the Coast Miwok people here? And how can I support their campaigns? How can I support their efforts to, uh, to, to care for the lands that are their traditional lands? Um, so I think there's a lot to learn about, one, acknowledging that many of us are not living on our traditional homelands. We have our settlers somewhere else and have not come from the places that we live. So how can we be respectful uh, newcomers, really, and not bring with us a colonized framework that we were all embedded in? And how do we begin to dismantle that and have a different relationship with Indigenous peoples where we live and learn how to be in their territories in a healthy way and how they're treating the land? So I think that's like a beginning point. I think also that it's really important to learn about the profound struggles Indigenous peoples are having because colonization is not over and the attacks on the lands and territories and rights of Indigenous people is far from over. So as an example, when we're talking about here in the United States, there's been a lot of different um, fossil fuel projects, whether it's expansion or pipelines that are always going right through indigenous territories. And 
I think it's one of the biggest fights that has really happened here in the United States. I'm sure people have heard about Standing Rock um, and other big pipeline fights here to stop fossil fuel expansion have been led by indigenous peoples and many times by indigenous women who are often the backbone of these movements, speaking out to protect the water, to protect the land, to stop the climate crisis from uh, further harm through fossil fuel extraction. Um, this is also true in, you know, we talk about forest protection in the Amazon as an example. It is indigenous people's territories where those ancient forests are, and they're often on the front lines protecting their forest territories. And so it's really critical that we also stand up for indigenous rights in the global south and the right for uh, indigenous peoples to protect their territories. And there are international laws, as an example, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which includes something called Free Prior Informed Consent, or FPIC, which not all countries have adopted, but almost all countries have, and yet they don't adhere to it. And it really gives Indigenous peoples a right to, one, be consented about whether or not they want harmful projects coming into their lands or not, and two, the right to say no if they don't want that project. But very unfortunately, and our organization often gets very involved in these struggles, that right to say no is not respected by extractive industries, by the government or financial institutions. So one way we can really respect the protection of the land, the protection of biodiversity and water and forest is by supporting indigenous campaigns and struggles to protect their territories because they're the ones who are caring for them and maintaining them in a healthy manner. And then I think just in terms of traditional ecological knowledge, there's just so much to learn from indigenous peoples around how to care for the land. And, you know, just one example from California, there are ways in which uh, indigenous people here for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years had very localized burns in the forest to keep the foliage down so that it wouldn't build up and then have these huge forest fires. And of course, this has gotten even worse because of the climate crisis and the drought, where now, as we know all over the world, there's you know a fire starts and it creates a massive inferno. And some of that could be maintained and cared for if we were practicing and listening to indigenous peoples about these small burns that they were very careful to maintain. Um, and the last thing I'll say, because there's so much to talk about the brilliance of ecological knowledge, which we need to learn from, is that most of the lands all over the world, people consider to be wild or untouched wilderness for indigenous peoples has been lands that they have very carefully maintained for millennium. And it looks wild and natural because of the deep care and love and reciprocity indigenous peoples have had with their lands. But it is also a way of how do we become um, life enhancers, keystone species in the ecosystem as our ancestors and indigenous peoples all over the world have done when we did live in a respectful way with nature. And I think we need to come back to these practices. And, you know, I would really suggest people reach out to indigenous peoples and find out and learn from them, find out whose territories you're in. And also there's so much gorgeous literature coming out from indigenous leaders about traditional ecological knowledge that you can directly learn from, because I don't really like to speak for indigenous people. I don't think that that's my place. I do like to convey support for their wisdom and knowledge and really center that 
in our work around the climate crisis and environmental degradation and understanding different worldviews of seeing an animate world and all the things that Indigenous people have to offer. But truly, I think the best thing to do is learn from Indigenous peoples about their wisdom and knowledge. I don't know if you um, know that what happened here in Canada yesterday in Nunavut, a very historic document was signed. It's called a devolution document. Our prime minister was uh, in Nunavut and they have transferred the largest land transfer in Canadian history back to the Inuit people, 2 million square kilometers. And this was a 25 year in the making (laughs) process that actually happened yesterday. So the Inuit people will now have a final say over what happens with their land and their territory. And so, um, wow, that that's super- like such fantastic news. It was a huge <laughs> thing. That's enormous. And the whole land back movement is yeah. really growing. I really excited about it. So thank you for sharing that great news. Mm-hmm. We've been seeing, you know, lots of different, uh, maybe not at that size, but land back, exchange going on uh, throughout the North American region. And I think it's one of the most important and exciting and inspiring movements that we, we can uh, support right now. So thank you yeah. for that. that yeah, it, was, uh, it goes right along with what you were saying. And yeah, my work that I do in my, in my other work, we do a lot of reconciliation work and start all of our meetings with territorial acknowledgements and, and really have a partnership with our local indigenous communities to try and learn and change our colonial language to uh, non-colonial language where we can. And, and yeah, we're still, we're always learning. So that's, it's an important piece of the story. Oh, good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that great news. I didn't get the name of the treaty or the, or the laws. There is a universal Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples through the United Nations that has been established. And within that, there are specific rights called free, prior, and informed consent. And when we look at international law, we know that there are human rights, but there are also Indigenous rights. The UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People is specific to Indigenous peoples. And they really fought for that because correctly, they argued that they have unique rights as Indigenous peoples that are connected to the land and are collective rights, not an individual right for a human, but because of their worldview, the right to this relationship with the land, but also this collective right as peoples, plural. And so I think this is very, very important, something that, you know, as I say, many groups, not just ours, are really working to support Indigenous peoples and being able to implement those rights and have them be respected. And what about women? Because it's a very, very part of your work. And uh, so what can we learn from women? Or what the world can learn from women in, in being more sustainable and respecting the environment more, better? What can we learn from us? Yeah, that's a very, a very, very key to or components of the book. Um, again, I did a really deep dive into that. But also in terms of your question more immediately about the role of women, I think that some of the crises that we're in really stem from gender inequality and the fact that we are in these not only colonized, but patriarchal frameworks 
in societies around the world. And we are suffering from that. And so just giving some practical examples for listeners, just so we're, we're not um, trying to cover the entire scope, which is so massive when we talk about gender inequality. But right now, due to gender inequality, uh, women and girls around the world are impacted first and worse by the climate crisis because of the fact of everything from them not having uh, the same economy to operate from, having voice, having mobility, the fact that they care for their families. So whenever there's any climate impacts, women are going to feel those first. They're also feeding their families, collecting water. Everything that has to do with our lived experience is impacting women when, when we see the climate crisis unfolding. But one of the untold stories, on the other hand, is that women are actually essential to sustainability and climate solutions, and we can't get there without them. And I have on my website many, many, many statistics around sharing exactly why and how women are leading the way in the climate crisis. And I'll just give a few here, which is between 40 and 80% of all household food production in the global South is done by women. There are so many areas that are drought stricken now because of the climate crisis. So we need these water programs to really ensure that people have water during this time. And the United Nations has shown many studies that demonstrate that if you don't involve women in these water programs, they simply don't work because women are doing the water collecting. They're the ones monitoring the water levels. They're the ones who are caring for the water in the household. And so you have to have women engaged in these programs. And then, at, you know, we're looking at whether it's grassroots movements. Uh, so many of the big resistance efforts to uh, stopping forest degradation or stopping fossil fuel extraction, you'll see a lot of particularly indigenous black and brown women right at the head stopping these projects that are most impacting them because they're in the areas that are considered sacrifice zones or sacrifice areas. So they're leading a lot of these movements to stop harmful projects. And then when we look at a country level, we know that when women are in parliamentary positions, uh, they often pass environmental laws that are more high quality and more caring for their societies. We did see, even if we look at the COVID-19 pandemic at the height of it, there were many different news articles showing that countries that were led by women did far better in dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic than countries led by men. I would also add that, and I talk about this in the book, that um, there's something called the uh, Women's Political Empowerment Index, which is really talking about how women are expressed in society, if they're involved in social movements, if they're involved in politics, their, their general voice in society. It's called the Women's Political Empowerment Index. And with just a one unit increase, you get an 11.51% decrease in carbon emissions, which is huge. And so I could go on and on, but this is just to kind of give us a basic framing about the incredible power that women have when they're given agency and voice. And yet at the same time, we live in these societies that are not recognizing or uplifting the central role of women. So as an example, just a, a month ago, I was in uh, Dubai for the COP28 climate talks, and there were 133 heads of state there 
but only 15 of those 133 were women. And, you know, like I said, we could go on and on about the role of women and what is happening when they're in leadership roles, as well as gender diverse leaders. And we see such an incredible positive impact, and yet they're under acknowledged, underfunded, underrepresented, underpaid. And this has really got to change. This is a core to how we're going to resolve a lot of these interlocking crises from you know, the economy to racism, to the climate crisis, to environmental degradation, to peace building. We need women at the table. And this is a constant effort that we all need to be collectively engaged in. I was quite fascinated about the information about the witch trials. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was, yeah, you, you went in depth into a lot of that, and it was quite fascinating to read. At the beginning of the book, I give the example of something I learned from a wonderful permaculture teacher, Pandora Thomas, and she taught me, and then I did some more research from the Ancon people, the uh, the Sankova bird, um, which is a mythological bird. And it's a beautiful symbol of a bird who is facing backward while its feet are facing forward. And that symbol of the feet going forward and the head turning back, as it was explained to me, is that we need to pull from the past and look from the past and understand the roots of how we got to where we stand today while we move forward. And so relating to your mentioning the, the witch trials and what was happening with the witch burnings in Europe, it's part of a, a larger section in the book of how did we arrive at this gender inequality and this degradation of the female and the casting down of the goddess? And how did we end up in a monotheistic religion of one male supreme god? And where did all these concepts come from, going back to your comment about stories and narrative and how important they are? So how do we begin to dismantle these ideas of women as second-class citizens and all of the work that feminist movements have been engaged in for a very long time to really dismantle the systems of patriarchy? And so the witch burnings are a part of the manifestation of that, but it's also part of the current trauma that we still carry, they were not that long ago. And so we have intergenerational trauma that we're also all carrying forward that is also needing to be um, unveiled, unpacked, surfaced into the sunlight so that we can begin to heal it and transform it. Um, and that's part of, part of this work of the feminist movement and the need to really bring about egalitarian societies again. And I would also say that, you know, I don't think it's about putting men down. I think it's about lifting women up. It's about balance. It's about balance. And do you, do you see light at the end of this long road? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I think we're in an incredibly difficult time. I think that um, it's dark. It's a dark time between the climate crisis, biodiversity loss, wars that are going on, the horrors that are going on in Gaza, the um, pain and suffering in Sudan. We could go on and on. Um, you know, the, every year there are more people dying from fossil fuel pollution. So no, I don't think in any way we should paint a, a pretty picture of the dire circumstance we're in. And, you know, 
like I said, I just came back from, from the COP and it's, you know, yes, there were some gains, but oh my goodness, there was over 2,400 oil lobbyists, fossil fuel lobbyists rather at the, 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 at, at the climate talks. And we could go on and on about the difficulty there and the lack of representation of frontline communities, indigenous and black and brown women specifically, and the need to hear from those most impacted, uh, the extraction that is going on. So that, that list could go on and the horrors that are going on under the name of uh, white supremacy and colonization and perpetuating business as usual. But for me, within that context, I, I think while one world is burning, another world is being summoned and brought forth. And that's what keeps us all going is the conversations we're all having now. We couldn't talk about colonization before or racism, you know, even in the context that we do now or patriarchy. There is now more knowledge about how to have these conversations than there were before. It's not enough, not nearly enough, but those dialogues are happening in the public sphere much more they, than they were in the past. I also would like to share just a couple of real-term examples. One is um, I'm really honored to be on the steering committee of something called the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is a, a parallel um, or a mechanism that can work in parallel with the Paris Climate Agreement. And it was originally initiated by a wonderful woman named Zipporah Berman. And basically it's based on the nuclear non-proliferation treaty. And the idea is that the Paris Climate Agreement is really based upon carbon emission reductions, which is very important, but it doesn't deal strongly at all enough with fossil fuels. I mean, they finally brought fossil fuels drugged them onto center stage at COP28 because of civil society and climate vulnerable countries. But now we have this mechanism that 12 countries have signed on to that specifically deals with the mechanism for how we can actually phase out fossil fuels, which is the core source of the, the climate crisis. So um, I'm very excited because at COP28, Colombia, which is an oil producing country, a fossil fuel producing country, endorsed the treaty and it's gaining momentum. So that's something like, okay, this is a real tool and mechanism and instrument we can get to where we need to do, go in terms of fossil fuel phase out. And then the other thing that I am also excited about, I would mention is I'm on the executive committee of the Global Alliance for Rights of Nature, uh, which is also gaining a lot of momentum. Even the UN secretary general said, earth jurisprudence is one of the largest growing environmental movements in the last year. And basically, this is the idea that rivers and forests and mountains and ecosystems can have rights. And this is very important because right now, a forest or river can't be represented in a court of law because it doesn't have its own standing. It can only go into court if a human owns that property and can talk about it as a property owner. And so rights of nature is really profound because it turns our system of law upside down and inside out and says, actually, no, we need to put earth at the center of the conversation. We need a system of law where rivers and forests and mountains also have rights, like we have human rights. And so rights of nature is a form of earth jurisprudence to do this. And it's not just an idea. It's an idea that's actually being implemented as an example in 2008 in Ecuador, 
they were the first country in the world to put rights of nature into their constitution. And since then, there have been cases that one rivers have been protected with rights of nature legislation. Uh, across the United States, there have been local ordinances to protect uh, communities from fracking. In Colombia, there has been uh, rights of nature legislation to protect the Amazon rainforest. One of the stories that really moves me, um, and I also put this into the book, is um, I was really honored to go with some colleagues from an organization called Movement Rights, who initiated a fact-finding mission in New Zealand, where the Maori people who fought over a hundred years to protect the Wanganui River were finally successful not too many years ago in working out a settlement with the New Zealand government where there are custodians and um, guardians, one from the government and one from the Wanganui tribe to protect the Wanganui River as a relative, as an ancestor within the worldview of the Maori people of seeing again, the animacy of nature as alive and as our relative. And they have always viewed the Wanganui River as their ancestor. And it was so beautiful to be there with them to learn about how they view their river. And now the river's protected under uh, a personhood law to be treated like a person. So no harms can come to that river, just like you couldn't harm another human being. And I was taken by some of the elders from the Wanganui tribe to, to meet their river in a really sacred place and went there with them to meet the river, hear some of their traditional songs. And they shared with me one of the, the sayings that they have, which is, I am the river and the river is me. I am the river and the river is me. And really that deep recognition that, you know, the waters in our body, the, the waters that we drink, the waters that we bathe in, are how we are alive. We are inseparable. And how to really embody that and to live with that understanding, I think is key to also unwinding a, a lot of the crises we're in. And so, you know, going back to your question, I mean, the hope for me is that, you know, we have the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, we have rights of nature, we're seeing an incredible, beautiful resurgence of indigenous knowledge and indigenous leadership that needs to be respected and honored. We're seeing uh, women really rising up in every sector and taking on more leadership. None of this is enough. But when we see sort of this ecosystem mm -hmm. of activities, we see how there is a future that we're building that is very different than the one that we're in. There's all kinds of conversations around food sovereignty and food security and localizing organic farming. We're seeing many conversations about what is an economic system that is not based on GDP, not based on endless economic growth models. As an example, you know, donut economics or beyond growth models or degrowth models, or I really love the concepts coming out of indigenous people from the global South around Buen Vivir or Sumat Kausai that are very holistic, that are looking at how do we, how do we grow creatively? How do we grow community? How do we grow relationships instead of how do we grow by extracting things to make more stuff? What are other ways that we can grow? So I think this is where I really have my hope in the innovations and creativity of, of um, a very different perspective of what our, our future agenda could look like. 
I think we have to struggle for it. I think we have to fight for it. I don't think it's going to come easy, but we need to keep mapping it out and discussing it and speaking it awake and enacting it and advocating for it. And we, we owe this to the earth and we owe this to our current and future generations to do everything that we can. You're very inspiring. Thank you. I have, I have one more question. <laughs> <laughs> and I know we're almost at time. What is next for you, Osprey? What's next for me is uh, really growing the garden that I'm in because uh, the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network is quite expansive and growing. And so I mentioned some of our programs earlier, and I would really like them to scale in different ways and be more reachable to others. And I just want to name one project again, just because I think it's always great to hear the stories. Um, I'm really excited about a lot of our work around the forests. Mm -hmm. And there's a wonderful weekend coordinator named Nima Namadabdu, who is in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And we've been working with her for about eight years. And we have been reforesting land that had been completely decimated through slash and burn techniques and environmental degradation. I mean, land that like there's no green on it. And as we know, forests are absolutely central to um, lessening the climate crisis and sequestering carbon. So what we've been doing is planting trees and working with over 700 women now in the region to reforest this damaged land. But some really wonderful things have happened in this process. One is eight years later, about 25% of the trees are being used in the communities for human use, for food and shelter and medicines and the things that they need. 75% of the trees are there to rewild the land and heal the land. But in this process, one point six million acres of old growth forests in the Otombe region are now being protected because the communities are not going in there to get their needs. And so we're protecting old growth forest, reforesting damaged land, and then also providing forest for, for human use. So it's a very integrated process. And then one of the things that's been really inspiring for me is that I didn't think so quickly this would happen, but the trees we have planted have brought back the rain. And so the entire ecosystem and biome in that region is changing. And of course, nature is the best healer. And so all these trees and companion species are growing everywhere within the area that we have been planting. And so now it's sort of our nurseries and Mother Earth's nurseries working together. And it's been really quite something to see the healing that can happen. And as some listeners might know uh, the DR Congo is one of the most violent places in the world for women because of all the conflict. And this has brought them a lot of safety because they're not wandering off collecting wood or medicines. Their trees are local. So it's a way for the women to be more protected, um, have more education and more time to themselves and also changing their status in their communities because suddenly they're the ones, because they're the ones getting funded. They're the ones doing the work. They're the ones who are, in charge of this project and they're being uh, brought to different conferences to speak about their victories and they're being really centered as the leaders. Um, it's been really beautiful to see the social change in the communities and the healing that the women tell me are going on because of the role that they're now playing in, in bringing uh, so much strength and change to their communities. So it's just another example of, you know, how we can view change and why we need to really keep growing uh, women's leadership. It's beautiful. 
Thank you. This has been fascinating. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me here to join uh, you both. And I'm really excited to learn about that work that you're doing because I do think that education and sharing right now is really important because those of us who are really dialed in are very focused on these topics and very deep into the research and the conferences we attend. But I know it's so important that we reach out and engage everyone because everyone can do something and everyone needs to do something because the window of time we have is very short and we need everyone on board and to find their passion and their entry point and, and jump in because it, it really is a time for all of us to get involved. And everyone lives on planet Earth. So it's about us, everybody. Well said. Yeah. Thank you very much, Osprey. Thank you. You've been listening to Carbon Sessions, a podcast with carbon conversations for every day with everyone from everywhere in the world. We'd love you to join the Carbon Sessions so you too can share your perspectives from wherever you are. This is a great way for our community to learn from your ideas and experiences, connect, and take action. If you want to add your voice to the conversation, go to thecarbonalmanac.org slash podcasts and sign up to be part of a future episode. This podcast is also part of the Carbon Almanac Network. For more information, to sign up for the emails, to join the movement, and to order your copy of the Carbon Almanac, go to thecarbonalmanac.org. Be sure to subscribe and join us here again as together we can change the world.